We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We all know too well life can get busy. So often we're rushing around with to-do lists and day-to-day tasks. But every once in a while, we have to slow down to check in with ourselves, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And that's exactly what we are about to do right now. I sat down with Rabbi Steve Leader for a beautiful conversation about life, loss, and the profound way in which the two intertwine. As the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, one of the largest synagogues in the world, Rabbi Leader has witnessed the many ways death teaches us how to live and love more deeply by showing us not only what is gone, but also the beauty of what remains. In both his sermons and his best-selling books, Rabbi Leader shares messages and poses questions that cause us to stop and consider the lives we're leading. He reminds us just how beautiful life is and that in the end, nothing matters but love. Whenever I talk to Rabbi Leader, my soul feels so filled and it feels comforted. I hope yours will too. No matter what religion you do or do not follow, I promise you will walk away from this conversation feeling inspired to live a truer life and to do so right now. I'm Hoda Kotb. Welcome to my podcast, Making Space. One of my favorite people on the planet is sitting across from me, not on the phone, not on Zoom, face-to-face. And this is the way I like to sit with you, Rabbi Leader, because you have eyes that are extremely understanding and also knowing. And from the very first time I interviewed you, I sat across from you, and before you even said three words, I felt something so spiritual and powerful and strong. And I guess I just want to say, first of all, I'm happy to be with you. Uh, And I with you. You're a healer. I feel like. Is that how you see yourself? Yeah, as long as you understand the difference between curing and healing. Uh, what what not is the difference? The same thing. Um, there are a lot of things in life you can't cure, but you can heal from them. Mm. So I, I can't undo evil. I can't make a tumor go away. I can't bring someone back you love. Huh but I can uh, structure the chaos and help carry you and give you some faith and hope in the future um, and and help you heal, which is very different mm. than curing. When there's a lot of pain, some people think that there's no way back. Not a physical ailment, but the kind of pain that you carry when you lose someone, when you go through a divorce, when you have something, you've, you've lost your job or your reputation, whatever it is, and people are limping through life, how do you even begin to help? Well, the first thing, there are a lot of strategies mm-hmm. for that. One of them, I actually remember helping you with in the early, early days of COVID. 
I said to you, let's all try to think of prior to this, the most difficult thing we'd ever been through. Mm -hmm. And I know, I think what came into your mind and, and then ask ourselves, how did we get through that? Hmm. And whatever you did to get through that, those tools, those people, mm -hmm. they, they still exist in your life in a way you have been here before, mm. just not in quite as extreme a fashion. Mm. It's not completely foreign territory to you. You mm -hmm. have normalized trauma before. You have normalized fear for your life before. Mm -hmm. And we can all do it again if we lean into our relationships, mm -hmm. reach out. You know, um, I talk about not catastrophizing the future. Yes, yes. And I talk about this old Yiddish expression, which I love, which is, when you must, you can. When you must, you can. Yes. Uh -huh. When you must, you uh -huh. can. Uh -huh. People are unbelievably strong and resilient yeah. when they have to be. When they have to be. And we've all had experience being strong and resilient, and that doesn't abandon us mm -hmm. when the time comes. So it, there's this beautiful phrase also that I love. I won't bore you with the whole story, but the punchline is from like the, the Talmud. Well, the the story is about a rabbi who's ill and a rabbi who comes to visit him. This is a 2,000-year-old story. Yeah. This rabbi has the reputation of being a healer. Mm. And he reaches out to this rabbi who's suffering. He reaches out to him, and this rabbi reaches back. Mm -hmm. And as the Talmud puts it, he lifts him from his suffering. And then the punchline is, because the prisoner cannot free himself. If we can reach out, hmm. it's very likely there's someone who will reach back and help lift hmm. us from our suffering. Hmm. But, but we can't get out of this prison ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, that segment we did Mm -hmm. A few years ago on my underlying anxiety disorder mm -hmm. and that I I lost control of it and I needed help yeah. and I got help yep. and it changed my life. I could never have gotten out of that prison alone. I think for someone to reach out, because I'd imagine there are a lot of people listening right now who are going through uh, something that's like a private pain. Maybe it's even a secret. Maybe it's something they can't even speak out loud. It might seem too big and too scary. And the idea of reaching out for help seems um, overwhelming almost. So they carry it. And I think there are a lot of people who say to themselves, look at me. I'm 40 years old. I'm 50 years old. However old I am, I've been carrying this and I'm fine. Yeah. Some yeah. pain we carry, yes. they will rationalize. Yes. And they think, uh, <laughs> I've done it, so why can't I continue doing it? You can until you can't. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you're doing to subordinate that pain, and you have to do something to subordinate that pain, to keep it locked in the basement of your psyche. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. Whether it's workaholism or some other kind of ism. In order to keep those demons locked in the basement of your psyche, you have to live a life out of balance hmm. or certainly a life where your, your professed values mm -hmm. and your lived values mm -hmm. are not the same. Mm. And that's a horrible way to live. Horrible. I was in this group setting where, and it was kind of a, was like a retreat. 
and they asked people to yell out their deepest shame. Well, when you verbalize it, yes, you own it. Yeah. In fact, you know, I I can get go down so many rabbit yeah. holes with you. Yeah, but, I do. Uh, Eight hundred fifty years ago, greatest rabbi of all time, Maimonides. He talked about the um, reasons that people fall fall out with other people and yeah. how to get back, how to truly repent, yeah. yeah, completely, how to how to be forgiven and how to forgive, mm-hmm. and he comes up with these four steps. The first is to stop the behavior, whatever it is, stop it. You caused a bad accident because you text and drive, whatever. Yeah. Stick the phone in the glove compartment. Stop. Stop. Okay. The second step is to verbalize, to say say it out loud. (laughs) Because when you say it out loud, you're you're flinging that basement door open. Oh, my God. Right? You're letting it out. Uh And then- you can talk about it. And if you can talk about it, you can manage it. I mean, what do therapists really do? What do mm. I do? That We create what's called a holding environment, mm. a safe, completely confidential relationship with real boundaries mm-hmm. that gives you the chance to unburden your soul. And that's a very important step to to being, I guess, w- what I would call in alignment. I can tell you that the unhappiest people I know, mm-hmm. and in my line of work, you see the insides of a lot of people's yeah. lives. The unhappiest people I know are people who, as I said, have one set of values, their professed values, and then the way they live, and they're really divergent. Totally different. That's yeah. why politicians and celebrities yeah. and regular people get into so much trouble. Mm-hmm. But even if they don't get caught, it's a very, very difficult way to live. That dissonance will tear you apart. Mm. On the other side of it, the most content, the most whole, fulfilled people I know are people who live pretty close to their truth. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's not too late. Some people it's wonder, never too late. is it too late to kind of, have you always lived your truth, do you no. think? And anyone who says they have is not telling not the truth. telling you the truth. How far away were you from it, and how close are you today? I've been very far away in certain corners, yeah, but mostly aligned in my you know family and and public life. Mm-hmm. But no one can be aligned. All the, all the time. time. You know, this idea of there are good people in the world and yeah, bad people in the yeah. world, it's not true. Mm-hmm. The line between good and evil, it runs right down the mm. center of all of us. And and multiple times a day, we have to decide yeah, choices. which side of the line am I going to be on? We have agency yeah, and we have choices and we need to make those choices multiple times a day. Wow. Because most people's moral dilemmas, the things that are going to throw off their alignment, it's not murder, violence. I mean, very few people engage in that kind of behavior, really, despite the news. It's the tiny choices. I I once gave a sermon that started with, rather than give this sermon, I thought about stepping out here and putting a scale and a feather in front of you and saying to you, Witness this scale. Witness this feather. It is 
all you need to know. All of life, all of existence, all teaching. Ponder them hmm. and sit down. Hmm. Now, I didn't. I, I mean, that's how I started the sermon. Mm-hmm. Then I talked about this idea of a metaphorical scale mm-hmm. for each of us that is perfectly balanced between good and evil. And that the destiny of the entire world depends upon the balance of this scale. And whichever deed you do next, even a deed the weight of a feather, Hmm. will tip the scale. Wow. Wow. Like little tiny choices you make every day, little tiny decisions you make every day. The small is everything. Oh my gosh. Well, you deal in so many things, and the books you write are... Some of my favorites, I give them away for Christmas. I give them away to friends. But this book, I mean, I feel like you're getting, you get to topics, obviously, that in in many families we don't ever even discuss. Mm-hmm. And it's death and dying. And, you know, what happens near the end? Mm-hmm. What happens if you've had not a rocky relationship with a loved one? And now you hear they have a terrible diagnosis. Now what do I do? What happens and what doesn't happen? And how do I make up for 10 years of this? You sit at the bedside with the families. What have you gleaned from just being in that unique position? A lot. But I'll ramble a little bit and tell you the things that are most profound for me. And I'll start with one that might surprise you, given that it only happened five years ago. So before my dad died, I had officiated at literally over a thousand funerals, a thousand bedsides, a thousand bereft families, um, a thousand oceans of tears. And part of what people do pretty often before the funeral starts is they view the body. Then the casket is closed and remains closed for the service, et cetera, and the burial. Hoda, I... I had stood next to a thousand families looking at the body of their loved one. And it didn't affect me very much because it wasn't my loved one. Mm -hmm. I was there doing my um, job, fulfilling my role is a better way, I think, to put it, to carry people through Mm -hmm. and to to offer some empathy and some structure and and some some kind of path back out into the light, Mm -hmm. okay? But honestly, like I could have eaten a sandwich Mm -hmm. standing next to them Mm -hmm. because professionals have a shard of ice in them. Mm -hmm. They have to. Mm -hmm. This is still very hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. So my dad had Alzheimer's for 10 years and he, he died and he was buried the morning of the eve of Yom Kippur, Mm -hmm. the, the most spiritually significant day of the Jewish year. So I flew home to Minneapolis. I have four siblings there. My mom, everybody's married and has kids. And, you know, the, the tribe is there. Mm-hmm. We go to the synagogue where the funeral's going to be. We're sitting in some room off a hallway, waiting for the rabbi to come and take us in to see my dad's body and then close the casket and then walk us back into the sanctuary and start the service. And I remember when the young rabbi walked in, I remember thinking to myself, 
I know exactly how the young rabbi feels right now, mm-hmm. but I have no idea how I feel mm. right now. Okay, that's profound. And then we walk out and I approach my dad's body in the casket. And uh, I, I, I put my hand on his chest mm. because I didn't want to feel how cold I knew his skin was, but I put my hand on his chest. Now, to really understand what I'm about to tell you, there's a little bit of backstory which is that my dad and I have looked almost identical at each age of our lives. Mm. If you saw a picture of me at 10 years old and a picture of my dad at 10 years old, other than the clothing, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Mm. You see these bags? <laughs> this is, people tell me all the time in LA, you know, if you're on TV and stuff, yeah, you yeah, could, yeah. we could take care of that. I said, never, this is my dad. I look in the mirror in the morning and it's my dad. So I approach the casket, my hands on my dad's chest, and I'm looking at him. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, hmm, that's how I'm going to look when I'm dead. Hmm. And my son is standing over my casket Hmm. and body. I am going to die. Hmm. That was the moment when I realized I am going to die. And that moment changed my life for the better, made it more beautiful, more important, more precious. And my heart was broken. So that's the most important thing I've learned is that the fact we're going to die either means nothing matters or everything matters. And I say, since that experience, I knew it kind of before, but everything matters. Everything matters. Kafka was right. The meaning of life is that it ends. <laughs> you know? The poet Wallace Stevens, I'm going to paraphrase him badly, but he said, the beauty of a flower is that it fades. <laughs> you know why no one likes plastic flowers? <laughs> because they have no death. They have mm-hmm. no life. So that's the singular mm. truth of it all. That there are other things I've learned yeah. that are also ennobling and important, but that's the biggest. What did you lose the day your dad passed? What did I lose? Mm-hmm. Well, people with that disease die twice. Mm-hmm. So I had lost the man who was my father years before. And I was surprised at how painful the death of his body would be. Mm. It was no less painful than the death of his mind. And partly because there was no, in a way, no no easing into it. No, you know, he died in his sleep at Mm -hmm. four in the morning Mm -hmm. in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And while it was inevitable, it was still a shock. Mm-hmm. I've heard that a thousand times in mm-hmm. my office on what I call my couch of tears. Mm-hmm. People with a, a father who's 98 years old, I can't believe he died. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, to the outsider, it's, it's really, come right, on. Right, but, but from the inside, it makes course. perfect sense. It's like you're watching your girls grow up yeah. and you can't believe yeah. 
right? How grown up they yeah, are. Yeah. <laughs> and that happens your whole life. Yes. You when you look at your kids, it's like, I can't believe, what do you mean you can't believe it? you were there every day, all day that it was happening? Yeah. But still, it's a miracle. And, and uh, but the day my dad's body died, in a way, I think I gained. Hmm. I gained partly because of what I just mm-hmm. told you about adding value to my days. And partly because... It enabled me through the process of grief. It enabled me to go back in time. This is the amazing thing about human beings. We're the only creatures on earth that have the ability to summon the past Mm. into the present Mm -hmm. and carry it into the future. No other creature can Mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. And so when we sat, you know, the five kids and my mom and and the grandchildren, and we started talking about my dad, Mm We were able to talk about the dad before Alzheimer's, before the, you know, torturous decline. And that was a beautiful journey, which I still take often. Did he remember you in those days? Well, it's very hard to know. I'll tell you an amazing, boy, you're, (laughs) you're getting down there. Um, my parents were 17 and 18 when they got married. Mm. They had five kids before they were 30. Didn't know a lot about parenting. Mm-hmm. Had a horrible marriage. My mother, I visited my mother uh, mm-hmm. in March for a week because all my siblings were out of town. I spent a week with my mom. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, I was sitting in the little apartment in the mm-hmm. assisted living and she just watches mm-hmm. Turner movie classics yeah. all day long. Yeah. She's almost 90. And I said, Mom, you seem happy here. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I am, honey. You know, Stephen, I couldn't really be happy till your father was dead. Oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> Honesty comes with age, right? Yeah, I you said, say Mom, your thing. you can't. I, like, I might be 63, yeah. but I'm still the kid. And yeah. she said, well, it's true. <laughs> he was awful. And <laughs> so I don't know how I got off on that tangent. But just so you know that my parents had this very conflicted relationship. And and uh, my dad had stopped talking for about oh. the last two years of his life. Oh. However, uh, I went home to visit him. I tried mm-hmm. to go every three or four months. Mm-hmm. And I often felt like it would be the last time I saw him. So I treated every time I saw him like the last time because he kept getting pneumonia and all these things. And I was getting ready to say goodbye. And he was in a wheelchair all the time at that point. Mm. And by the way, there's nothing more difficult to see Mm. than them transferring your once strong, fearsome dad from a wheelchair to his bed Mm. in a sling, dangling like a marionette. It's awful. It's awful. Uh -uh. So my dad's in his wheelchair and I get down to his level. And and I said, Dad, I'm going to go back to L.A. and I'll see you in a few months. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, I really love you, Dad. Mm. And he went like this. He he hadn't spoken Mm -hmm. in almost two years. And he went like this. Kept, he always made this motion yeah. when the Alzheimer's was profound. And yeah. he, he went, and I love you too. That was it. It was such a gift. 
my mom and my brother were there and they, uh, they were amazed. So somewhere, when you asked, did he know me? Somewhere. He did. He found the pathway. He found the light to be able to say uh, that. I will never, ever forget it. It's the most precious <laughs> thing I have from my dad. Oh. And it's not a thing at all. You know, it's so... It's so interesting that you said everything was kind of clear when your dad passed. You had a duty that you performed as a rabbi with other people who had lost loved ones, and now going forward there were going to be more. Um, you, you probably, I guess, changed the way you may have done some things, but... I did. You changed it? It made me a better rabbi. It did. made me a better human being, made me a better dad, made me a better husband, made me a better friend. I don't think I was doing a bad job before. Of course not. But another Yiddish expression, yeah. which I love, a half-truth is a whole lie. <laughs> Isn't that great? So true. That's brilliant. Yes. Well, Yiddish yes. is, yes. Yes. It's a distillate of brilliance. Yes. And this is how my dad taught. This is why I was telling you how young my yeah. parents were. Yeah. My dad was completely uneducated. He owned a junkyard called Leader Brothers Metal with mm -hmm. my Uncle Mort. And his professorial abilities were expressed in Yiddishisms. Mm. That's how he taught us. <laughs> and a half-truth is a whole lie is a very powerful idea that we could use in this country and in mm -hmm. our government and in mm -hmm. business and in advertising yes. and in just about every aspect Everything. of our lives. Yeah. And um, I realized when I moved from being Steve Leader the rabbi to Steve Leader the son, mm that I'd been telling people a lot of half-truths about grief and loss and disease and death and moving on in the Valley of Shadows and all of it. Hmm. And I actually wrote The Beauty of What Remains as a kind of apology to the community. Hmm. This is what Steve Leader the rabbi believed, and this is what Steve Leader the son discovered was wrong about that belief. And I will tell you that I've learned much more mm. being the son than the rabbi. Coming up, Rabbi Leader shares the questions we should all be asking ourselves and how we can shape our legacy after the break. Every parent is a busy parent. There's enough on your plate without piling on your kids' homework. And considering how much teaching methods have changed, most of us are a little rusty anyway. Consider IXL, an excellent resource for homework that can make a huge impact on your child's ability to learn. Backed by research, kids using IXL are actually scoring higher on their tests. Our techniques help them master topics in a fun way, complete with positive feedback. We're seeing improvements all across the country as IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S., and IXL is also very affordable. One month of IXL costs less than the typical hour of tutoring. On just one website, IXL covers all the kids in your home from pre-K to 12th grade. Sign up today to get 20% off your membership at IXL.com slash H-O-D-A. That's IXL.com slash H-O-D-A.
The Beauty of What Remains, just the title of that book. Did it come to you how, and and just explain how that How the title came to be? I love that title, by the way. Well, I, I finished the manuscript. Didn't have a title. Mm-hmm. And this is typical of me. I then reread the manuscript and looked for my favorite line mm. and found the title within mm. that. Mm. Yeah. And there is beauty that remains. I mean, sometimes. So much. In fact, there's also beauty that's only revealed by loss. Mm. You know, one way to think about it, it, I can give you the fancy Latin term yeah. is via negationis, which means by way of the negative. Okay. And it's a th- form of theology. about So you can understand what God is by understanding what God is not, by taking away bad ideas. Okay. Think about a sculpture. How does a sculpture begin? It's a block of marble. And it takes someone to skillfully remove chip by chip by chip, everything about that block of marble that isn't that beauty hiding inside, Mm. right? So we can create by ceasing to create, by removing. Mm. And this is true of death. It strips away so much. It clears away so much, dramatically or chip by chip by chip. And often what it leaves behind is something really beautiful. My relationship with my dad in death is in many ways much better than it was in life. A lot of people at the end, I was just thinking about what happens. I've had friends, several friends, in fact, who upon the passing of someone in their life, their parent or whatever, there is a whole family feud over stuff. (laughs) <laughs> who gets the stuff? Yeah. The stuff. Yeah. The the silverware. The who got the little house that was on the corner? Like it is a knife fight, really, for stuff. <laughs> but yes, it cracks is. you up. But what up with all okay. the stuff talk? I, I think I can help you with okay. that one. Um, this is another fundamental that I knew, but really learned very deeply through all these deaths that I've been um, adjacent to. Yeah. Uh, the first is there's a a chapter in The Beauty of What Remains called Nobody Wants Your Crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so this came from a friend of mine, Deborah, who's mm. a casting director in L.A., and she went home to Florida because her mom died. She came back, and I said, what have you learned? She said, I'll tell you what I learned, Steve. Nobody wants your crap. And she meant the double entendre. Okay, first of all, nobody wants your crap. One of the saddest memories of my dad's death is going down into the basement of my parents' townhouse in Minneapolis, mom said, Stephen, honey, go downstairs, see if there's anything of your father's you want to take. I go downstairs and all of my dad's stuff was in a heap on the basement floor. Nobody cared, nobody. The only thing I took was my dad's hat (laughs) because I loved walking around Palm Springs (laughs) in the winter with him in that big man in the yellow suit, Curious George hat. That was my dad walking around Palm Springs like he was the king. And that was it. So we spend all our lives working so hard to make money, to buy things that we think matter and they don't. And I like nice things as much as the next guy, Mm -hmm. but 
I don't define my life by them, and I don't believe my outer life is an inner life. That's like trying to eat a picture of food. Yeah, it's yeah. not real. Yeah. So the first thing is that the it's not that things aren't nice. It's just that they don't have real meaning. Right. They can make you comfortable, but they don't mean anything. That's the first thing. Uh, net worth and self worth have nothing, mm. you know, to do with each other except in our minds. Mm -hmm. And I think the the other like real uh, truth that I have learned over the years, which has been incredibly helpful to people, far more than I thought. Yeah. What? Here's another fundamental truth. I'm going to okay. give you this is gold, okay. Hoda. I'm ready. This I'm is ready. Gold. I'm ready. People face death exactly the way they face life. And people die the way they live. So that family that's fighting over the paperweights and the fountain pens and the china, that family fought and bickered over material things in life, and they're going to do it in death. The family that's whole and loving and funny and juicy and warm, when their loved one is alive, they're going to be that way when their loved mm -hmm. one's dying. This is also true for the dying. If, if you're a a bitter, angry person in life, you're going to be bitter and angry when you die. If you're a person with friends and community and, and love, that's how you're going to die. Death doesn't change us. It intensifies us. There's a Heinrich Heine, the German poet, had this joke about the Jews. He said, the Jews are like everyone else, just more so. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love it. I yeah. love it. You could say it about anyone, really. But death doesn't give anyone a new personality, whether dying or grieving. Death doesn't give anyone a new family dynamic. We live and die the same way, just more so. so if that's you wanna, the truth of it. If you want to correct then, because if you're listening to this and going, yeah. I don't want that, I want to have some more. And there are families that don't talk about their feelings. They actually don't talk about the possibility of someone passing. Yeah, It's like the book. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. Everything goes under the carpet. I know a lot of families who operate that way, it's hard to have a meaningful conversation in that kind of a setting. Not for them. Not for them? For them, that is meaningful. Yeah. You know, it's hard not to be judgmental about how other people manage these things. Yeah. It's hard not to want to impose, could you just hug your daughter for God's sake? Yeah. Could you just get along? Could you just agree? Yeah. Uh, that the grandchildren will carry the casket? No, they can't. Now, they can't, yeah. why is this helpful? Yeah. Because I get a call from you and you say, Steve, um, I know this isn't true. I'm making it up. Yeah, it's okay. Steve, about 10 years ago, I stopped talking to my mom because she's cold and narcissistic <laughs> and withholding. I've felt horrible about myself my whole life around her. And I text her on her birthday and Mother's Day and- <laughs> Frankly, it's better for both of us. But mm -hmm. now she's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She's got three to six months. And I'm going to go back to uh, the Midwest. And I, I, I really hope that we're going to find each other. To which I say, I hope so too, but I doubt it. And I don't want you to set yourself up for a fantasy that is very unlikely to come true. And why is that unlikely? Because people don't change yeah, because they're change. dying. Yeah. And there you go, walking into the punch one more time. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying don't go. I'm saying don't go with some magical thinking. 
Yeah. That your mother is not going to be your mother. Yeah. Because she has a bad diagnosis. She's going to be your mother and more so. Now, that might feel like harsh guidance. It's such a relief to people. It's such a relief. I've just noticed listening to you and also knowing you that you really do tell the truth. You tell the truth to people who seek you out. You tell the truth in a eulogy, even if it's painful. Even if it's painful. Yes, there's a way to tell it that yeah. is that is sensitive. Yeah. Like, for example, let's say the woman who's dying, who's, whose funeral it is, all up in her kid's business, yeah. incredibly annoying, you know, yeah. just yeah. the impossible. Yeah. Right. I might say something like, you know, the worst thing a parent could ever be is indifferent. <laughs> and she was never indifferent. Yeah, yeah. Now, and they'll the, get it. The kids get it, kids but get everyone it. else is thinking, oh, isn't that's that lovely? Sweet. And that's the art of of a eulogy. A eulogy is a, is to is the truth. Obituaries are the facts. Yeah. Facts don't tell you very much about no, a person. A eulogy is you want to get to the truths and and of course in a way that uh, is is dignified and respectful and mm-hmm. kind and loving, but nevertheless the truth so the family feels heard. Mm-hmm. And I'll go one one level deeper yeah, for the I truth like with you, which yeah. when I wrote these couple of paragraphs, um, the beauty of what remains is like 50,000 words, something like that. Maybe a hundred were about this topic mm-hmm. that I'm about to share with you. And I put them in there because this might help a handful yeah. of people. Here's something I know. People often come to see me and say things like, Steve, um, I've had this terrible relationship with my mother and she's going to die. And I, I think I'm, I'm just going to feel so guilty and so much shame that we never repaired the relationship, mm-hmm. that I couldn't repair it. And I say to them, maybe, but more likely, you're going to be relieved. And they look at me like, oh my God. How does he know? Am I a bad person? But the truth of it is, there are toxic relationships in life. We do have to cut some people out of our lives like a cancer. And when they die, it's a relief. And that's the truth. Wow. And it's a liberating truth for people who are carrying guilt and shame. Yes. And what about unresolved stuff? Unfinished business. Yeah, I just have one more thing to say. I should have said this. I didn't do that. But is... Well, I'll I'll tell you, um, we have this amazing ability to see the missing wedge in a circle. Mm -hmm. All of us. Uh, There was a Soviet-era psychologist named Blumazir Garnik. And she basically demonstrated through a number of experiments that people focus much more on the things they didn't get done than the things they did. The metaphor would be that if you show every human being a picture of a circle with a wedge cut out of it, your eye goes to the missing piece Uh every time Uh first. And so I can gently guide people away from that. Um, And very often I'll say something like people say, I wasn't there when he died. I said, that's true, but you were there when he lived. And isn't that what matters? I had this with my dad. He died 2,000 miles away from me in the middle of the night. 
I wasn't there. I have not felt, honestly, any pain about that because I was there when he lived. It's so beautiful. Still ahead, rabbi leader shares the 12 essential questions to tell a life story and a simple but profound practice of gratitude. Stay with us. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. I love this book, too, uh, For You When I'm Gone. It's another mm-hmm. one of my favorites. For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And I can only imagine you coming up with, with these 12 beautiful questions. These questions are the questions mm-hmm. I've been asking families for mm-hmm. 37 years mm-hmm. to try to get to the truth of the loved one who's yeah. died. So the question, what is love? We tend to think that we make sacrifices because we love someone, I have found the opposite is the case. Hmm. Now, I have to get a little geeky on you for a second. The Hebrew word for sacrifice, the biblical Hebrew word for sacrifice is korban. Think of it like as a root, K-R-B as the root letters. Those root letters also comprise the words for relatives, Hmm. to be close, Hmm. to draw near, to gather in, that was sacrifice in the minds of the sages. It was something you did to draw closer to God, nearer to Mm. God. And of course, because these were communal pilgrimage festivals, you were also closer Mm -hmm. and nearer to Mm. the people you love. So when we give, we actually draw closer and nearer. Mm. I'll ask you this. I think this will probably make the point pretty clearly. What are the two most important things in your life? Healing and hope, my girls. That's one. Let's say your kids. Yeah. Your girls. Kids, yeah. What's second? My family. Rest of my family. Let's say family's one. Okay. What's second? I would Let's think- Let's do God, n- not family, your, not and your, here. And here. Yeah. First, second, yeah. and third. Yeah. Okay. What are the things you've sacrificed the most for in your life? Well, now, probably my kids now, but work was the first one. Kids and work. Yeah. That's what yeah, everyone that's says. It. Mm-hmm. Now, I asked you what matters most to you mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. And you said basically kids and yeah. work yeah, and God. Yeah. Then I asked you, what have you sacrificed the most for? Yeah. It's the same. Yeah. Meaning. Uh, I get it. Meaning we care the most about the people we sacrifice the yes. most for. 
That's the point. That's who we're near to and dear to and close. And when you start to think about love in that way, Mm -hmm. it changes the way you love. Mm. This nonsense that I say this to wedding couples all the time, Mm. this idea that marriage is Mm 50-50 is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. It's never Mm 50-50. After I had my back surgery, it was (laughs) 99-1. I was depressed. I was on steroids and opioids. I couldn't walk. And and I just needed Betsy to take mm-hmm. care of me. There was no 50-50. When she's had her multiple surgeries, there's no 50-50. Mm-hmm. That's love. Mm-hmm. There's no 50-50 about it. There's no 50-50 in in those types of Mm-mm. meaningful relationships. Mm-mm. And once you start to understand that and mm-hmm. live that, you, you stop keeping score. Mm-hmm. You start to realize that unlike our culture, where sacrifice has such a negative connotation, mm-hmm. oh, she made so many sacrifices. Yes. He made the ultimate sacrifice. Yes. We tend to think yes. of sacrifice as a net loss. Once you start thinking about it <laughs> as a net gain, it changes the way you live. And it changes your relationships. And it removes bitterness and scorekeeping and yes. all of it. And that's the room you make for love. Oh, my God. That right? is so profound yes. and beautiful. Yes, yes. What it question is. number is that? That's in here. Uh, three. Okay. Well, by the way, all the questions in case you want to know, I'm just going to read them. What do you regret? Mm-hmm. When was a time you led with your heart? Those are related, by the way, because what I found is what most people regret most at the end of their life is not something they did. It's something they didn't do. Something they skipped. It's a it's a sin of omission. Omission. What makes Which you Which makes me ask, when did you think with your heart? Because if you ask people when they thought with their heart, when they subordinated their intellect, it led to the most beautiful decision in their life. That was my that was my that was my kids. You led with your heart, you right? You know why? Everything logistically, intellectually made no sense. Right. But it was the right decision, exactly. and I you, knew it. Right. And by the way, the minute I decided that I wanted to have kids, even at my age, everything in the universe was showing me. I walked. There was an interview with Sandra Bullock. I'm like, I googled her age. I'm like, she's my age. She's actually a little older than me. <laughs> yeah. Oh my word! And yeah. then, and like everywhere I turned. But you're right. All of a sudden, it opens up. Yeah. And then, I mean, it was the best decision I ever made. And if I would have ever thought logistically, if you start doing math, you won't do anything. Yeah. It's the best thing I ever did. Yeah. I think it's why the Bible says we're supposed to, uh, you know, love God with all our heart, with all our soul and all our might. Doesn't say intellect. Right. Doesn't say brain. brain. It doesn't. The brain is always driving. I feel like the, our brains are driving and like our spirit and emotions and all that are in but the But that's backseat. not what the ancients no. believed. The ancients believed the heart was the seat of wisdom. All right. Okay. What so was where your, were we? One what, is regret. Two right. is heart. Three. Wait, three is what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. That's something to ponder. What What was your biggest failure? That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, what got you through your greatest challenge? Well, this is what I was talking about. Whatever challenge you're facing, call to mind the previous worst thing you ever faced and how you got through it and remind yourself you did get through it. Here we are. And here we are again. What is a good person? Oh, yeah. God, that's a good one. We say to people all the time, you know, be good. He's a good person. What does it really mean to be a good person? 
What does that really mean? Because it's very hard to be a good person in the abstract. Yeah. Yeah. God, what is love? Which mm-hmm. we covered and loved. Have you ever cut someone out of your life? That's, that's another chapter. That's chapter There's a eight. lot to learn from that. Yeah. The relief you describe is really profound. And that you can't save everyone. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I went to summer camp in Minnesota. You learned to swim mm-hmm. in lakes. Mm-hmm. I took the life-saving course, mm. Red Cross life-saving course in the 70s. And the first thing they teach you is throw, row, and go. Throw, row, when go. someone's drowning, uh-huh. the safest thing you can do is throw a flotation mm-hmm. device. If you can't do that, the next safest thing is to row, to get in a boat or a jet yeah. ski and get out there. The last thing you should ever do is get in the water and swim out to a drowning person. Right. Because their instinct is going to be to push you down right. in order to lift get themselves up. up and breathe. Right. And they will drown you. Yes. Yes. And so this is true in relationships. There are certain people mm-hmm. you throw, you row, you cannot go. You can't go. They will take you down. Yeah. God, that's good. Um, how do you want to be remembered? Well, then you get to reverse engineer your life. If this is how you want to be remembered, loving sister, and you haven't called your sister for three years, really? Right. So let's let's realign. (laughs) It's funny. I remember. I think it was David Brooks said that. Like, there's the resume you and the oh, exactly, and the you. That's exactly right. That's those are the divergent. Yeah. Which one are you gonna are you gonna work for? Uh, What is good advice? Mm -hmm. What will your epitaph say? Again, when you have to distill your life down to 15 characters per line and four lines total, that's what headstones allow. That's what would it. it be? When you are engaged in a very powerful exercise in essentialism, right? Mm. I have to get what I hope for to be remembered by the people I love down to fewer characters than a tweet. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And then you, again, you get to reverse engineer because Mm -hmm. I walk through cemeteries a lot and we're all unique individuals, but almost all headstones say exactly the same thing Mm -hmm. because we all have the same aspirations with rare exception, Mm -hmm. loving wife, Um, mother, grandmother, daughter, friend. That's That's our aspiration. Now, are you living living it? And if not, what are you going to do about it? Last chapter, what will your final blessing be? Yeah. I always ask when I'm meeting with a family after however long, a couple hour conversation about their loved one. Do you have a loved one who's died? Yeah, my dad. Your dad. How yeah. long ago? Uh, I was in college, junior. Yeah. Okay. Young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did he die? Uh, a heart attack at a while he was exercising. Sudden. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I would have asked you, and I'll ask you now, mm-hmm. if your dad could have stood up there at his funeral and looked out at you and said something, mm. what do you think it would have been? What would it be? I'm proud of you. Mm. That's it. That's his final blessing for you. Mm. I'm proud of you. <sighs> what more could a daughter hope to hear? Yeah. Yeah. That's why that question is yeah. so important. Oh, that's beautiful. Because that's part of the beauty of what remains is your dad still has the last mm-hmm. word mm-hmm. with you and it's I'm proud of you. Yeah. That's beautiful.
By the way, this came out of what we were talking about, about materialism. Because when you think about most people, what is your what is most people's final word mm-hmm. to the people they love? The last thing your kids ever hear from you. Yeah. It's usually a legalese document written by a stranger that's completely about who gets what and when and how mm-hmm. much. As if that will somehow, the material will somehow express your love, express the spiritual it doesn't. It doesn't. What, what do we really what? want? What's the real Tell legacy me. we want? Our loved ones' story, their values, their hopes and dreams and mm-hmm. blessings for us, their life lessons for us, their regrets, their hopes, their guidance, even after their body is gone. That's the real inheritance hmm. we crave. And that's why I wrote this book, so that people could have a way to gift that mm-hmm. to their loved ones. Instead of the paperweights and fountains. Instead of the paperweights and fountains. I love, <laughs> before we get to this, I love one of the things you said is if there's somebody who's changed your life mm. or impacted your life, you have a suggestion for that person. Yes, a gratitude visit. Would you tell me? Because this yeah. is, by the way, I think we did an interview years ago. We did I one. never forgot that. Yeah. And well, I think all three of us were crying. Yeah, we were bawling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this comes from Martin Seligman, who's the um, sort of father of positive psychology at Penn. Um, he was treating patients for depression. And one of the exercises he gave them was to choose someone who changed your life for the better, who you never really properly thanked. Write a 300-word thank you letter to that person. Mm-hmm. Show up unannounced knock on the door. When they open the door, read them the letter. Mm. And what he found was everyone's crying. Mm -hmm. And his patients' depression improved one week, one month, Mm. and one year after. And this is part of what I was saying about the prisoner cannot free himself. When you reach out, and sometimes hold a, like, I mean, I'm sure you can relate to this. You do so much for so many it's easy to forget how dramatically you have been able to change people's lives. You changed my life. Hmm. I've always wanted to say, I've thought about writing one for you and showing oh, up God, here, but I couldn't get in the door. Um, you're, <laughs> I'm serious. You, I'm going to do it now. I wrote this book on pain. Mm-hmm. I knew I had something to say. I knew I had the ability to say it. I have something to mm-hmm. share with people. I care about people. I love people. And I come on the show for that first time. And it was so clear to me that you had read the book, mm. that it meant something mm-hmm. to you, that we were having a real conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember. And I asked you what to say to Betsy because she had just been diagnosed. Mm. And it, it, there was, it was just mm-hmm. a moment where I knew, like, here's somebody who yeah. really understands. Yeah. And collectively, mm-hmm. all those segments... Mm-hmm. They changed my life. Mm-hmm. So I love you for that. I love you too. <laughs> the point is we don't know. Yeah, we don't When know. we change someone's life. So we do it all the time. Yeah. To, to know we're doing it mm-hmm. is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. When I announced my retirement, stepping down as senior rabbi in a year, 
I got so many. You must have what? beautiful things. How did that feel to, for that life change? That's a big one. Oh, I'm completely ready. Yeah, you are. I, um, it's a lot to carry. Yeah, and I've been there for 37 years. Wow. And when I finish the two halftime years, it'll be 40 years. Wow. Like even Moses could only do 40. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. So I'm ready, and I want to do it when I'm young enough to have another chapter, and I want a broader opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been in the same community for almost four decades. Mm-hmm. What did they say, the people? They un- most The people love me understood. It's an era. Ah, so you've and had your era we've there. Had, I've had my era. I'm going to let go of the trapeze, and I'm going to reach for whatever. Something for whatever. will be there. And um, I'm, I just... It's a matter of faith, but it feels good to me. I most most people leave either because of moral turpitude, or they've aged out so badly yeah. they have to drag them out the yeah. door. I don't want to be that guy. I'm not going to be that so guy. So when you're at this new, because I love new beginnings. Yes. I mean, there's something well, so there's something exciting. <laughs> I'm, scared. I'm a little. Scared. You're a little scared. Okay. So what do we know? What we're going to do next, or we're not? We sure? don't. We're talking to a lot of people in New York and a lot of people in L.A. and we'll see. I know not to take the first thing that comes along. Yeah. That I know. Yeah. But I really want to do it right. I'm going to have a second chapter. I, I really want it to be meaningful yeah. and fun. And I want to do something that matters to people, but doesn't suck the marrow out of my bones. Yeah. Because what yeah. I do, there are no half measures in what I do. Well, yeah. I mean, I think to be you're able- You're either there to, or you're not. Yeah. It's so funny as we're- having this conversation that your dad never really wanted you to be a rabbi in the very no, first the place. the first thing he, he like, said to me, no. okay, my junior year of college, yeah. I studied writing at Northwestern, mm-hmm. okay. My junior year of college, my dad sits me down and says, Stephen, only my family calls me Stephen, yeah. by yeah. the way. Stephen, I, I see a couple options for you when you graduate college. Okay. You could go to law school and take over Leader Brothers or you could not go to law school and take over Leader Brothers. Those were my two choices. Either way, you were going to take over the family <laughs> exactly. business. That exactly. was exactly Okay, exactly. and then what? And I said, you know, Dad, I, I really, I think I'm going to be a rabbi. I want to be a rabbi. And he looked at me and said, rabbis are beggars. Wow. That was, my dad was harsh. Yeah. Okay. Hilarious, but harsh. harsh. Yeah. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. Now, despite that discouraging response years he his worldview didn't have an image of the rabbi mm-hmm. i i was able to become yes, yes. they didn't exist in his yes, world yes. in his world rabbis were like these slovenly guys with mm-hmm. pickled herring on their ties and you know bad teeth yeah so <laughs> you know he didn't have yeah. a, a universe in which to imagine yeah. what i could see yeah so my parents had a condo in palm springs for the winter and when they were there every winter and I was preaching on a Saturday morning, they would drive in from Palm Springs to watch me preach. Then we'd have lunch and then they'd drive back. There could be 2,000 people out there, Hoda, and I just saw one set of teeth smiling. And that was my dad. Oh, I love it. So he got with the program. He got it. He did. Oh, He did. Man. He got it. But at first he was, he was discouraging. No, he wasn't thrilled. Wow. Um, so there are so many life lessons for anybody who wants to read For you when I'm gone, 12 essential questions to tell a life story and the beauty of what remains, which is out in paperback, how our greatest fear becomes our greatest gift. Um, 
Well, I just want to say that I love you to the moon and back, which is what I say to my kids. And I'm so happy that you're here. I'm so happy that you chose this profession. I'm so happy you defied your father. (laughs) And I'm so happy that you have a new chapter coming up. Well, thank you. You promise to come back whenever we figure out what that is? I promise to come back whenever we figure out what that is. You do it every time. All right, Rabbi Leader, I love you. We'll see you back here again. too. Thank you, Hoda. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening and for coming on this journey with me. If you like what you heard, and I hope that you do, please give Making Space a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And make sure you tell your friends, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Making Space with Hoda Kotb is produced by Allison Berger and Alexa Kasavecchia, along with Amanda Sidman, Abigail Russ, Kate Saunders, and our production assistant is Megan Cilio. Our associate audio engineer is Juliana Mastrarilli. Our audio engineers are Bob Mallory and Katherine Anderson. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our head of audio production. Missy Dunlop Parsons is our executive producer. Sharice Williams Laredo is our senior producer. Libby Least is the executive vice president of Today in Lifestyle. We have a special thank you for our last episode of this season. We'd like to thank Mary Casolino, Tom Mazzarelli, Pete Breen, Ali Markowitz, Talia Parkinson-Jones, Alexa Danner, Lauren Gamsey, Justin Pirelli, Abby Boucher, Melanie Hendel, Judy Robinson, Laura Olson, Lauren Gantabine, Megan Stackhouse, Sarah DeCaro, Grace Dubay, Ashley Kodiani, Melissa Radzimski, Mary Catherine Suhaki, Danielle Brennan, John Makeley, Joe Dibble, Ernesto Guadalupe, Javier Parra, Nick Offenberg, Robin Gradison, Leiling Jew, Leon Druin Keith, Rainey Farrell, Emily Sharippa, Jared Kindiston, Mitch Rissmiller, John Paulson, Adam Kaufman, Dina Raisman, Alvin Sinoff, Tim Mojica, Amanda Sidman, Abigail Russ, Brittany Bosner, Katie Disler, Allie Detweiler, Kate Saunders, Bailey Howell, Christina Mana, Lilia Wood, Brooke Glatz, and Dylan Murphy. And to all my guests, and especially to you guys listening, thank you for making space for us. I'm Hoda Kotb. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are.